Well, my son Elias played t-ball last year. It was a weird year to play in the middle of COVID because all the parents, we all had to stand in the outfield and stand next to our kid and try to hand them the ball. And then they would throw the ball in and the other parent would catch the ball and hand it to the kid. It was really not baseball at all, but that was, that was how it worked. Uh, this year was his first year in machine pitch. And those of you who've been through this journey uh, in machine pitch, I, I have to be honest with you, this is kind of new territory for my family. Uh, we've been taking our older kids, uh, they've all played soccer. And, not, and in soccer, when you start in these younger ages, there, there's a running time clock. Uh, the, the game starts and the time starts. And then in an hour, the game is going to be over, no matter what happens. How many times a kid uh, twists his ankle or gets taken out of the game, or if there's a yellow card, or if the referee doesn't show up, it doesn't matter. It's going to be one hour, you're done, find a parking place, tops 90 minutes, and you're on the road, and you're headed back home. Uh, Little League Baseball is a whole different animal. Uh, I mean, this, it's, uh, you don't play a full nine innings or anything, but when they're just beginning and you're just learning, uh, they, they use the machine pitch so that the ball is coming across the plate at a reasonable speed and that it's coming in the same place so the kids get to look at the same ball uh, each time uh, that it comes. Uh, later on, when they move up to kids pitch, I've heard that that's just you know, an awful, awful thing for any parents to be a part of. Uh, where the kids are like throwing things all over the place. Uh, uh, for, for you, this is just a snapshot into my own little league career. I played two games uh, when I was in fifth grade. I played two games. The first game, I struck out each time that I was up to bat. The second game, when I was up to bat, one of these uh, kid pitchers hit me when I was up to bat on the first pitch, shattered my thumb in 14 places, and so I played soccer after that. I gave Elias a hard time last week because I think it was Tuesday last week where the school had a half day of school. And so, uh, I, I mean, that's like a whole other story of like it was a half day of school, which means that we pick him up at 1030 in the morning. That doesn't quite add up to me. But we had the half day of school, and that same day in the evening, uh, he had a baseball game. I literally was at the baseball game that day longer than he was in school that day. I mean, this is, it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, on Elias's team, there's a little fiery redhead. His name is Donovan, who looks like he's destined for the major leagues. Uh, this kid, when he steps up to bat, I mean, he stares, I'd say the batter or the, the pitcher down, but really it's the machine pitch, so he's staring down the machine. He's ready to just hit the mess out of that ball, and he usually does. He's a very intimidating kid when it comes. Elias, not so intimidating, not when he gets up to bat. Uh, Elias, if, if you were there to watch him, I, I don't know uh, if he's ever been clocked in, in Little League that there's ever been a slower bat swing than Elias when he steps up to bat. Um, when the pitch happens, I mean, he comes around. Now, to his credit, to his credit, he's been taught to watch the ball hit the bat. And to his credit, he swings that thing around so slowly that he does see the ball hit the bat and then go foul five, six, seven times when he's up to bat. And finally, when he does make contact, because it's so late coming around, he hits it up the first baseline, the ball rolls right to the first baseman who steps on the base, and then another, another day out there playing. Uh, why do I bring this up? Because I, I, it's, it's a long game, but that's not really the point of this, and it's not my point to like uh, unnecessarily un embarrass my kids, so be gentle to to Elias when you see him after the service. 
Uh, but this summer, we're making our way through a sermon series on the book of Revelation. And here's today's sermon. I don't know if you see it on the screen. The wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. Now, when Elias steps up to bat, he's like a little lamb stepping up to bat. There's nobody on the field that says, move back, move back. The Lamb is up to bat. It doesn't make any sense. And when you see this sermon title, it may sound like a paradox or, or an oxymoron to you. The wrath of a lamb. Have you ever seen an angry lamb? Have you ever seen pictures of Mary and the angry lamb? I've never seen that before. And it's, it's kind of hard to put those words together and put them to associate them together. But in Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, you're going to see this phrase, the wrath of the lamb. If you've got your Bibles this morning, I want you to find your way there. Find your way there to Revelation chapter 6. We are in this sermon series on the book of Revelation. We are in the fifth week of the sermon series. My name is Pastor Milo. I've not been the only one preaching through this series. Pastor Brian has been a part of it as well. And as we go through this, I want you to be able to see that this lamb is not just any old lamb. This is a very particular lamb. It's the lamb of God. It's Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to begin today by reading out of chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 15. It's near the end of the chapter, and you'll read this. Revelation 6, beginning in verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, they hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called out to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? So let's talk first about what's unfolding here for us. Let's be reminded of the picture here of how this is going to unfold. So if you remember from chapter 5, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, uh, you come into the kind of the divine command center of heaven, the throne. You come in and you realize that there's all these angelic beings and all of these angelic beings are all surrounded and they're waiting for the one who sits on the throne is produced the scroll. And in this scroll is all the history and all the destiny of all humanity. And, and, and it's closed, and no one can open it. And they ask in every direction, said, is there anyone worthy? Is there anyone who can open this scroll? And John weeps because there is no one that would appear able to open the scroll. But then one steps forward, one who is worthy. It is the Lamb. The Lamb steps forward, and now He has the scroll, and as He has the scroll, there are seven seals on the scroll, and He's going to begin breaking those seals and opening the scroll. And if you've read a little bit of Revelation, you know already that there are these series of events, and we covered this last week. I just want to remind us, there's these series of events. First of the series is the seven seals. After the seven seals, uh, there are going to be seven trumpets that play, and they kind of activate those seals. And then after the seven trumpets, there are seven bowls where the angels have these bowls, the bowls of wrath. Pretty intense stuff. But each one of these has like a series that happens as well, where there's, there's four things that are happening that are outward. They are visible. They are easy to recognize. And then there are three things that follow. So each group of seven have four things that are outward. They're easy to recognize. And then three things that follow that are kind of the revelation of what's going on behind the scenes, almost the activity of the angelic agencies that are there behind the scenes, both for good and for evil. And so I want to remind us of this book that we're reading, this book of Revelation, as we were looking at it, as we were looking at the beginning of the series, at the beginning of all of this, it's, it's this first chapter is the revealing of Jesus Christ, the pulling back of the veil of how can we see 
Jesus. And in the end, we are told if we embrace this unveiling that we, the church, will be blessed. That we will be blessed. So I'm reminding you from, of that today from the very outset because what we're going to dive into today is going to be pretty heavy. And yet we are told, as we are looking at God's judgment, and we are looking at the book of Revelation, we need to be reminded at the outset that this is all intended to be a blessing. I also want to remind you that the book is apocalyptic in nature. What that means is that that we're describing it's a style of literature that's so full of symbols and so full of signs. We have to read it from that perspective. I have to read it from that uh, point of view because it was written with intentionality from that point of view. That's why God gives it in this manner because if we start to read it from a different angle, from a different type of literature, we're going to be confused by it and we're also going to be misled by it. And so because God gave it to us in this apocalyptic manner, then we need to kind of see it from that lens and see it as symbols and see it as signs. And then as we look at these signs and look at these symbols, we should always consult other prophetic parts of Scripture, other references and descriptions that we have in the Bible to make sense of it. And so when you hit a wall in the book of Revelation, and we're going to again and again and again, we have to go back and look at what other things have been said. And we looked at this last week, that Scripture will always interpret Scripture. If you hit a wall, if you get stuck, if you're confused by the symbols, by the signs, Scripture will always interpret Scripture. So that's what we're going to do this morning when we get stuck. We're going to look at other pieces of Scripture as to how it helps us see what's going on. And in this particular portion of Scripture, it's surprising that we actually have seen that Jesus actually laid some of this out for his disciples. Sixty years previously, he is sitting around a group of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, who's the author of the book of Revelation, and Andrew. He documents for them back in the uh, 24th chapter of Matthew and kind of explaining what's going on. In the context of what Jesus was going through at that point, the, the Romans, they're in Jerusalem. And as he is there, the, the city is rejecting him as the son of man. And as he sits there and he looks over the city and sees the temple, the mountain temple there and the house of God and all these other structures, these Roman structures, these Herodian structures, he says to them that they'll all be reduced to rubble. This was a shocking thought, almost beyond belief for the disciples that are hearing him say it. As he's saying it, the only way that the that the Jews could believe that such an event would happen or that even his disciples could believe, this, it would have to be the end of the world. Because architecturally, these things were so stunning and so overwhelming, the thought of its complete destruction would have to mean the end of the world. And so they ask this question in Matthew 24, verse 3. So as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciple came to him privately and said, Tell us. They said, When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And at the end of the age. Jesus begins to answer that question, and it's the the framework by which we can look through this portion of the book of Revelation. What we saw last week was this unusual correlation between this passage and what he taught there that day, sitting in Jerusalem, and the four horsemen, as we covered them last week, or the the first four seals that have broken, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Today we're going to cover the next two seals from chapter 6. You've probably heard the old joke. You know how the joke goes, how there's someone standing at the pearly gates and there's an angel there to meet them with a clipboard and ask them a handful of questions. So the angel has his clipboard. He takes down the man's name, his address, and some type of 
uh, uh, pertinent information so that he knows who he is. And he says, tell me, is there some kind of unselfish deed that you have performed while you were there on earth? The man responds, he says, well, actually, I've got something that you may find very interesting. One day as I was walking down the street, I saw this older lady being mercilessly beaten by a motorcycle gang. And so I stepped in right away. I knocked over one of the guy's motorcycles and slugged him as hard as I could, kicked him, and then ran away. And the woman escaped. And Andrew said, well, that's pretty impressive. Uh, when did all of this happen? He said, well, about three minutes ago. That was an example of people all throughout history who have sacrificed their life for good causes, without, with chivalry, with love, with relationship. The noblest of all causes that we're going to see here in our text this morning is losing their life for the sake of Jesus Christ. Living your life to even the point of death because their love for Jesus Christ. In this first century context, Rome is the center of all things. As the saying goes, all roads lead to Rome. It was a place that Paul wanted to see. But there are many Christians in Rome who would be persecuted there. If you were to go there today and to stand in that Colosseum, if you were able to go there and see the ruins there, you could stand there, you could look, and you could see the seats there. You could see the floor, the, the remnants of, of the structure that still remains. And you can imagine the different sports that were played there. We have the Olympic Games that are coming this summer, and you can kind of imagine how all of that would happen there. Tens of thousands of people who would come to see the athletics that happened there in the Colosseum. But don't forget that among other things, other things that they watched, the Romans were also watching Christians being persecuted. That Christians were being brought there into the Colosseum and they were being torn apart for sport by lions and other wild animals. They were being persecuted. Their blood, the blood of these martyrs was spilt there on the floor, there on the ruins of the Colosseum. And something like that, particularly for us as Americans, is just almost impossible for us to imagine. So let me ask you this question. Do you hear the voice of the martyrs? Do you hear the voice of the martyrs? Because we may be ridiculed for faith and persecution in our day may certainly be coming, but as of yet, that type of persecution, that type of martyrdom, that type of sacrifice is something we've never seen here. Yet the world has always, always asked God's people to be willing to be persecuted. The world will not tolerate a true Christian at the end of the day. Give it enough time and persecution will arise. All who live their lives godly like Christ Jesus would have them to live will suffer some kind of persecution. When the Lamb opens the fifth seal, the fifth seal, we hear the voice of the martyrs. Chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that had been maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told, Wait a little longer until the full number of your fellow servants, your brothers and your sisters, will be killed just as they had been. So as these verses open before us, we're taken back up to heaven and we're shown this scene of souls 
under the altar, it says. There's a few things that need to be brought to our attention. Remember when Brian preached that first week and he talked about how the book of Revelation is like a cupcake. We need to take a bite of all of the layers of the cupcake. Remember that we have to look at the past, the present, and the future. And if you get obsessed with one portion of it, you're not actually taking a full uh, bite of the cupcake. You're missing something. And so this reference here, this reference to the altar is a looking back. According to Hebrews chapter 8, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, when he was instructed to build the tabernacle, he was to build it in a pattern of things just like they would be in heaven. So in other words, when, when Moses constructs the altar where animals would be slain, he was looking forward. So when we look back and we see Moses, he's actually looking forward in a way that the altar was merely a shadow of the altar that would exist in heaven. So everything that Moses had built for Hebrew worship was only a shadow of what would actually exist later in heaven. And when this passage tells us there are souls under heaven's altar, these souls are martyrs who have given themselves for the sake of the cause of Christ. In the Old Testament, when, when a lamb was slain on the altar, his blood was spilt there, and then the ash of that sacrifice would, would then become a testimony to the sacrifice that had been made. This sacrificial lamb here in this example, in this altar, these martyrs are the, sacrifi the sacrifice that bear testimony to the Lord. So the souls that are under this altar totally devastate two major misconceptions that are often taught, not always from this passage, but when it comes to teachings about Jesus. And end times. So you look at these verses and it kind of breaks up the ideology of something called soul sleep. I don't know if you've heard this term before. The idea that, that our souls are lying in the grave and our body is awaiting the resurrection someday. No, these souls, as they are there, these martyrs, as they are there, they are alive, they are aware, they are talking, they are very much alive and awake in the presence of the Lord. And so what happens here, it's a difficult paragraph to understand because what you're seeing is all of these different people who've been persecuted, all these different martyrs from all different time periods. And you're dealing with this phenomenon that's kind of hard to grasp of how can people all die over different time periods all through the course of history and all be there in the same place at the same time. The reality is it's what marks the difference between our world and eternity. If you've ever had a loved one who's died in the past, perhaps a father, your mother, a grandmother, a sibling, a child, or some other godly friend that you know is there with the Lord, you tend to think of them in some type of waiting period, that they're waiting for you to arrive. You may think of them as sitting around uh, playing a harp, dressed in some type of heavenly bathrobe, waiting for you to get there. But that's not at all the accommodations that we should expect for eternity and the time to come. The idea that, that we're locked into is because we are in this world, in this earth where time is a constant. But the reality is, is that in heaven, we cannot look at heaven in the same way that we look at earth. So future and past are all kind of intermingled and they're all experienced in heaven at exactly the same time. Eternity is always present and past and future. So our loved ones, when they die, or when we die, if we know Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, we go not into the grave, but we go into heaven. 
Or we go into eternity, to be more correct. We exit the trappings of time that we are so used to here. We are kind of pulled out of the timeline. And to, we, we, we rise to be with the Savior if we have a personal relationship with Him. Souls don't go into the grave. They either go to heaven to be with the Lord, or they go to hell, depending on where they stand in their relationship with their Holy Savior, Jesus Christ. So another misconception that's knocked down here when we look at this verse here and the idea of them being there at the altar is the principle of purgatory. There's absolutely no scriptural background or backing up for the notion that people are going to go into a holding pattern or into an eternal waiting room while waiting to be determined whether they're going to go to heaven or to hell. That they could suffer enough there that at some point then they would be able to move on and set free and go to heaven. Well, that's one of those things that we separate ourselves from the Catholic Church. Our friends in the Catholic Church, we've got a lot of things in common, but this thing we do not have in common. We simply believe that there is no way that you can coincide that with a biblical foundation, a biblical viewpoint of this type of teaching that would reinforce that type of position. In eternity, there is heaven and there is hell. And at any moment in all of history, when someone dies, they are taken out of this time and space, and all at once, they are there at the altar. And the same will happen with you and I. The fact is the Bible is very clear about this. There are no other options. There are no choices. Heaven or hell. So Moses, as he's told to, to copy this exact scenario of the altar. He is told that he is given this pattern of old. He was to order to be copied exactly as it was shown to him while he's there on Mount Sinai. And so the, the tabernacle, it contained these great brazen altar, uh, had this outer court, it had a holy place with specific furniture, it had the holy of holies, all reflecting the heavenly temple that Moses had seen. And so we also learn from scriptures that these are actually the symbolic space that was talked about as the dwelling of God. But when we look at a New Testament context to be able to see what does that mean for you and for me, we're actually told that our bodies, that you as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are the temple of God. So when Jesus, on that wonderful Easter morning, when he is resurrected from the dead, we no longer need a physical temple made from wood and from stone. You, Christian, are the temple of God. And so these symbols are given to us, and they become tremendously significant for us to actually understand the psychological thing that is going on, the makeup of humanity, body, soul, and spirit. Just as the tabernacle was arranged for Moses' time as the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies, our humanity consists of the same thing as the outer court, which is our body, the holy place, which is our soul, or the holy of holies, which is the spirit. And so when we see here, and as Jesus warns, in Matthew chapter 24, more than 60 years before John would see these revela this revelation and write these words. While sitting there outside of the temple that he said is going to be broken down and fall to ruins, he tells them, persecution will come. 
Matthew 24, verse 9 says this, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Let me put it this way. Great persecution is a result of the Great Commission. Great persecution is a result of the Great Commission. Whenever you fulfill the Great Commission, if you really fulfill it on an ongoing basis, you can expect for there to be great persecution. Little formula or memory trick that can help you with this that we look at Scripture, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and chapter 8, verse 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and Acts chapter 8, verse 1. If you do Acts chapter 1, verse 8, then you can expect chapter 8, verse 1. So let me explain. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, they're commissioned. They're told to go out into all the world. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But then if you continue on and you see what happens in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, you'll see that great persecution arose against the church. And that persecution pushed them from where? From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. And they were scattered abroad. So the Great Commission, if you fulfill it, will produce great persecution, as we see here. So do you hear the voice of the martyrs? Great persecution is the result of the Great Commission. Second question, do you see the signs of the times? Continuing in Revelation chapter 6, look at verse 12, we get to the sixth seal. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. What a vivid description of chaos happening in the natural world. The whole natural world seems to be going on a, on a rampage. But check out what happens in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus describes the exact same event in verses 29 and 30. Jesus describes it this way. He says, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And so what this seal is demonstrating to the universe and this universal shaking of all God's creation when it comes into contact with the physical presence of God. The, the physical universe shakes. And all through the Word of God, you will see it's identical. You'll see the same thing has happened all through Scripture. When the Lord comes down on the top of Mount Sinai and gives the people the law of the Lord, the Bible says that the mountain trembled and the earth shook and the rocks, they crumbled, all because they were in the presence of the righteous and holy Almighty God. When Elijah complains to God that, he, that he's there with the prophets of Baal and there are no other prophets, what happens? Well, the Lord passes by, and when he does, the great winds come, and they rent the rocks, and there is a great earthquake that tears the mountains apart. When Paul and Silas prayed at midnight in the Philippian jail, the Lord came down, and what did he do? He shakes the jail to its foundations, and the whole earth, it says, quivered and shook. When Jesus died on the cross, when God's judgment came upon his son for our human sin, 
the whole earth quaked, the rocks they shook, and even further, the sun itself was blotted out in the middle of the day. Matthew 27, 51 says, And there was a darkness over the face of the earth from high noon until three in the afternoon. So what do these things mean? You find them lining up exactly in the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, these things that he describes as the beginnings of sorrow and these first six seals that we find in Revelation chapter 6. Jesus speaks of famines. Jesus speaks of pestilences or diseases or viruses. He speaks of wars. And he speaks of earthquakes. And Jesus says it's all just the beginning of sorrows. So here's this. The beginning of the end is just the, be- the end of the beginning. The beginning of the end is just the end of the beginning. In the creation account, we read in Genesis chapter 1, God made two great lights, the greater light to cover in the day, the lesser light to cover in the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give a light to the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and it was the fourth day. So this is what God has created. The stars in the sky, the moon, and the sun. In Winslow, Arizona, there's a meteor crater called the Behringer Crater. It was formed on a mediator between 90 and 150 feet in diameter, slammed into the earth. That single impact left a crater 4,000 feet across, 2.5 miles in circumference, and over 550 feet deep. The crater was 90, excuse me, the mediator was 90 feet across. What we see here when the, when the sixth seal is broken is nature being upset and there's some type of cosmic phenomenon going on. Perhaps it is the crashing of a mediator that will upset even the gravitational pull of the earth. Whatever it is, volcanoes will begin to sprout lava. Great earthquakes, much larger than anything that we have already experienced, will rumble all over the earth. The stars will appear to begin falling from the sky. The darkening of the sun and of the moon will result from the ashes and from the dust of these, that's being caused by these catastrophic events. It would appear that the natural world is completely falling apart. This may also symbolize the breaking up of civilized authority and the breaking down of human institutions as a whole. The first four horsemen, the first four seals after the war and the bloodshed and the destruction, you would expect that there would be anarchy, there would be violence, there would be sin uh, indescribable all over the earth. And some believe that the sun being blotted out here, the symbolization of that, the sun being blotted out could be referring to, to all the leadership of the world, uh, primary, the primary authority of the world being blotted out and coming apart. And then the moon then falls as, as lesser governments begin to fall. Lesser government authorities begin to fall. And little by little, one by one, the stars then represent even more so a fall of lesser government authorities. Mountains representing kingdoms as they collapse. Islands representing lesser kingdoms as they fall into the sea. All collapsing like a house of cards. Not only is the natural world coming apart, the civilized world is coming apart. Do you see the signs of the times? The beginning of the end 
is the end of the beginning. Do you fear the day of the Lord? Verse 15 that I read earlier, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can withstand it? The day of the Lord. Who can stand is the question that's left hanging in the air. Of course, no one can stand. It's the end of civilization as we know it. All the people who have not yet believed in Christ, who have refused his offer of grace, are the subjects to this terrible catastrophe and cry out in desperate fear. This is how Jesus describes the same event in Matthew 24. Verse 30 says this, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. You see, the earth has always been here, and it's always been stable, and yet it will be shaken. The sun, the moon, and the stars, they've, they've always been there. They've always been stable, but they too will be taken away. For millennia, men have worshipped this earth, this natural world. They've staked all of their hope and all their future in the stability of the universe. And they'll suddenly find themselves in a world where nothing is stable. Their world is literally coming apart at the seams, and they are terrified. You get this statement. No one can withstand the wrath of the Lamb. No one can withstand the wrath of the Lamb. The picture that's being painted here is that every great man is there. Every small man is there. Every famous man is there. Every infamous man is there. Every wise man is there. Every fool is there. Every leader, every captain, every bondman, every free man. The whole earth is captured in this scene. And they are all there and they are all praying. Praying to whom? Are they turning from their sin? Are they trusting in Christ? Are they looking to God? No. They're praying to the rocks. Even as John writes this here, he's astonished by the situation, even as it unfolds, astonished by their lack of repentance. It's almost as if he's saying, it doesn't have to be this way. Don't they know? Don't they know Jesus? It doesn't have to be this way. Do you know Jesus? Do you know the Son of God. As the band comes up this morning, very, very quickly, we're almost done, but I want you to turn very quickly to Colossians, the book of Colossians chapter 1. I don't want you to leave today without knowing that this doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be this way for you and for me. You can know the Son of God. I want you to see Jesus for who He really is. I want you to see Jesus as the Son of God. Of God. Look at this, Colossians chapter 1. 
Verse 15, the Son of God is the image of the invisible God. He is firstborn over all creation. What are we watching? We're watching creation crumble. For in him all things were created, things that were on heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, whether it's thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. Paul is telling us that Jesus Christ was present at creation and that creation itself was his work. In other words, Paul is attributing all of creation to Jesus. And this theme is actually developed in the Gospel of John when John says, in the beginning (coughs) was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So in shorthand, let me put it this way. Jesus made it all. Jesus made it all. Have you got it? Jesus made it all. So if we continue, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his what? Through his blood shed on the cross so here's the complete idea Jesus made it all then Jesus paid it all Jesus made it all and then Jesus paid it all so that we can have a relationship with the living God Jesus made it all then Jesus paid it all so that we don't have to experience the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus made it all, then Jesus paid it all because the name of Jesus encompasses more power, more hope than we could ever imagine, more beauty, more power, more wonder. Jesus made it all, then Jesus paid it all. Do you know Jesus? Would you like to? Scripture tells us that we need to admit that you're a sinner. You cannot save yourself. Revelation 6 paints a picture of the rulers, the men, the kings, all of them trying to save themselves, calling on the rocks, will you protect me, will you save me? No. Admit that you are a sinner. You cannot save yourself. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That Jesus is the one who made it all, and therefore when he pays it all, He is the perfect sacrifice. And lastly, confess or announce Jesus is the Lord, the Lord of my life. He is the boss of my life. So this morning we're going to sing a song about the name of Jesus. If we meet and you forget me, you've lost nothing. But if you meet Jesus, if you have the opportunity to meet Jesus and you forget about him, you have lost everything. Don't walk away today without meeting Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of our faith.